So good morning, everyone. Can, we can see each other today all on the same screen. I don't know that we, if you want to send a message in chat, say something, that'd be great, but it seems kind of an intimate group already. So um, this is the last week that we're going to talk about anatta. And um, I had meant to read this poem at the beginning of the meditation, but I think um, not self, understanding not self and actually self and not self is a process of seeing things the other way around because we have a habitual way of seeing things and we have to kind of see them the other way around too. So I've titled my talk. Let's see if I can find it here. Let's see. Whoops. Okay, just a second. I need to find just one minute. I don't want to read it off my paper because it's, I keep looking down. Let's see. There it is. Okay. Okay, there it is. Okay, so I've titled this talk Self or Not Self? That is the question. And the answer, the way I, I see it, is both and. My favorite quote about the self, not self, comes from a Joseph Goldstein Dharma talk in which he said he was quoting an unnamed Tibetan teacher. And the teacher said, it's not that you're not real. We all think we're real. And that's not wrong. But you think you're really real. You exaggerate it. So that, that's kind of my where I'm coming from. And um, I really appreciated hearing that when I first heard it. And when I was getting ready for this talk, I wanted to use it, and I couldn't find it. I looked through my notebook of quotes and poems, and it wasn't there. And I had this vague recollection. It was in a talk. I know Joseph Goldstein did a talk, and it was in the talk. And I looked through my class homework from one of Tweri's classes from 2016, and she had to where she had Joseph Goldstein's talk on not self. And I said, I think it's there. And I listened to the whole talk, and it was the very last thing he said in that talk. But it was a good talk, so it was good to go through that. So we exaggerate the self, and that's where we get in trouble. But we we do experience ourselves. We know we're real. So the human mind, why do we exaggerate the self? The human mind loves to organize, and it isolates and groups disparate elements into forms and names them. We learned that in uh, dependent origination. The most significant form or concept that the mind creates is the self, and this concept is reinforced by our everyday language. 
The self is the subject of the sentence, the agent of action. I hear. You can't see me. Oh, yes, thank you. Just a second here. Um, why did that happen, I wonder? Uh, hmm. Let's see. Does anybody have a suggestion as to why you can't see? Can you hear me? Okay, you can hear me. Does anybody know more about computers and why I, I am not being seen? Are you, do you have the Zoom squares in front of you or are you on a different window? Oh, maybe that's it. I see the Zoom squares. I see all of you guys and I see me, but it has this, the Sims a symbol. Is, is your camera on? You know, the little slash through the camera? Is it on? Okay. Oh, there we go. Look who's there. All right. Yes, yeah, so start video. Okay, I'll have to remember that. Thank you, Greg. Thank you very much. Okay, so now back to my my speech here. Okay, uh, so anyway, um, in our language, the, the concept of self is reinforced because we say, I hear, I see, I think, etc. So we're the agent of, you know, the action. So, of course, we think we're real. Joseph Goldstein suggests that we might experiment with the effect of language on our understanding of self and not self by revising the sentence structure. Instead of noting, I am hearing, I am sleeping, I am thinking, etc., he says we can take out the I and note, hearing is happening, seeing is happening. Try this and see if it affects your concept of your relationship to experience. See if it opens things up at all. Does it affect your attachment or identification or your suffering or lack of suffering around the experience? So that's just one thing to do. And I, I think it, it does switch things. It flips things around and it kind of opens me to maybe I'm not attached to this. Maybe I don't have all this control. The Buddha said that to define yourself in any way is to limit yourself. So the question, what am I, he said, is best ignored. A better question is, what is suffering and what is its end? He also said that it was not so much the concept of self that's the problem. It's the clinging to the self. And I think we're all familiar with that clinging and the suffering that goes with it. By rightly understanding, I am uh, one and suffering, he said. By rightly understanding, I am one and suffering. In the Rohitasa Sutta, he said, I tell you there is no making an end of suffering without reaching the end of the world. Yet it is just within this fathom long body with its perception and conceiving mind that I declare that there is the world, the arising of the world, the cessation of the world, and the path of practice leading to the cessation of the world. So the world, part of the world is us, our self, and we create it, and we can cease in the creation of it. We need to learn what is real and what is not, and what is maybe both real and not real. 
to be in right relationship to ourselves, to others, and to life, we need to be aware of the causes and conditions that affect how we perceive self and not self. We need to appreciate the power of language as well as its limits. In the words of Cheng Su, um, a Chinese master, he said, what makes things so? Making them so makes them so. One teaching which the Buddha gave to help us with understanding how self is created was the teaching of the five aggregates. The thing is that the five aggregates are kind of hard to understand themselves. Many of us, myself included, have read about them many times and heard talks about them and still responded with, huh? Even Joseph Goldstein admitted in that talk I listened to that he had been pretty bored when he heard the topic explained over and over again. When Suze gave her talk on the five aggregates and their relationship to not-self a few weeks ago, she referred to a document called Basis of the Sense of Self. She doesn't know where she got it, but I perked up when she summarized the way it presented the five aggregates. I thought, this is making some sense to me. At the risk of boring or confusing you more, I'm going to give it one more go and summarize this presentation of the basis of the sense of self in terms of the question, how do the five aggregates contribute to our sense that we are really real? And it goes like this. Aggregate one is form. In relation to form, I think, I'm the one who inhabits the body. That's who I am. I inhabit a body. And I get reinforced for that. It feels like I'm inhabiting this body. Aggregate number two, feeling. I am the one who feels pleasure and pain. Yes, I know that I feel pleasure and pain. So that reinforces my sense of self. Perception is the third aggregate. I am the one who expresses my take on things. I perceive things this way. I have opinions about them. I express myself about the way I see things. And sometimes I'm really righteous about that too. And it sometimes keeps me from understanding how you perceive things and that it's different. So I know that I perceive things in a certain way. Mental formations is the fourth. And in relation to mental formations, I am the one who does right and wrong actions. I am the one who responds, in other words, or reacts. And that's often with um, thoughts and emotions. And the fifth is consciousness. That's the fifth aggregate. And in relation to consciousness, I am the one who is aware, who sees, who hears, smells, tastes, touches, thinks. That that all seems, yeah, that's me. And then it just gets reinforced over and over again. As you can hear with this way of viewing ourselves as the agent in control of our experience, the one to whom everything belongs, we are set up to create the story of me in which we are the star. Have you ever said or thought, I am the kind of person who, and then, fill in the blank, who likes security, who likes to be on stage, who likes to be behind the scenes. You know, we we add to our I concept 
with I am the one who. In his second sutta, the Buddha explained to the five aesthetics, his first disciples, that this is the way leading to the origination of personality. It may feel like this is mine, this I am, this is myself. But attachment to each of these kinds of experience, form, perception, etc., leads to affliction. Instead, we must practice in the direction leading to cessation. This is not mine. This I am not. This is not myself. When the five ascetics heard this sermon, they were freed of defilements without attachment, and they all became arahants. So it's a pretty powerful and important um, understanding that we're, even though it's hard, we're asked to try to understand Inquiry can be helpful to this end. Ajahn Kovilo from Clear Mountain Monastery shared a way to inquire into how we experience the five aggregates in order to help us deconstruct our identification with the self. We have a lot of assumptions that are shared with most people, but what happens when we question those assumptions one at a time? We can sit with one of these questions in silence and see what comes up. You can create your own questions using who, what, where, when, how, why. These were the ones that Ajahn Kovilo suggested. Who? So he's suggesting that we sit in meditation and we just ask the question, who is the owner of my body? Or who is the owner of my feelings? or who is the owner of my opinions and just see what comes up. A what question could be, what control do I have of this body? What control do I have of this mind or these feelings or these physical sensations? So we're just trying to open up and we're trying to flip the way we habitually see things. Where is the center of the self? I always think, oh, my heart is the center of myself. But just go deeper into it. My heart is the center of the self. So what does that mean? Why would I choose that? You know, what about my foot? Some people would say, my brain is the center of the self. So anyways, just an exploration. And then another question was, when? When is the self? And then my first thought was, well, when the self is born. That's when is the self. So then it means that if the self is born, the self will die. So the self is not permanent. Anyway. Just some things to explore. Why do we perceive a self as a whole when it's really a heap of parts? And how? How could a permanent solid self exist? So just exploring some assumptions, but in practical sense, you would only pick one. And you might just explore it for, you know, several weeks or, you know, 
Just see what happens. In mindfulness, we can meditate on the four foundations, starting with the body and inquire, is the body really one solid thing or is it a moving experience, a flow of different sensations arising in space? And I think we often do that in our meditation and we often see, starting with the body, that, wow, this is not solid. So we we have a foothold in mindfulness in thinning the self, as Rodney says. So we can always start start there. It's important to question our assumptions that there is a permanent solid self that accompanies us through our life because self doesn't rest on solid ground and so is a source of an insecurity that we keep resisting. It creates a feeling of separation and isolation, which also leads to a basic underlying subtle insecurity. As the Tibetan teacher Sogyal Rinpoche says, perhaps the deepest reason why we are afraid of death is because we do not know who we are. We believe in a personal, unique, and separate identity, but if we dare examine it, we find that this identity depends entirely on an endless collection of things to prop it up. Our name, our biography, our partners, family, home, job, friends, credit cards. It's on their fragile and transient support that we rely for our security. At first, it feels like we need this self to feel happy, at least um, In the beginning, when I was contemplating not-self, that's what came up for me. That was me identifying with the second aggregate feeling. I am the one who feels pleasure. If I don't have a self, how can I feel pleasure? But of course, the other feeling exists too. I am the one who feels pain when the pleasure ends, as it will. If we see the drawbacks in identifying clinging to form, feeling, perceptions, mental formations, and consciousness, we are, as Rodney says, thinning the self concept and opening up to the eightfold path towards awakening. Seeing the drawbacks and loosening our grip on the self opens us up to the path that leads to awakening. But we need a worldly self to navigate our lives, and we really can't get rid of the self or the comparing mind, which which is its companion, until enlightenment. Um, the self is a fetter, uh, and it binds us to a cycle of becoming, and it only falls away gradually with progress through the paths of awakening, from stream enterer, once returner, non-returner, and finally the full awakening. That's the only time when the self falls away fully and also the comparing mind, which really helps establish the self. So we do have to accept that we're going to have a self and and some degree of attachment to it. So our job really is to reduce the suffering, to get closer to awakening and, um, these investigations, these inquiries can help us do that. 
But there are two wings of the Dharma, wisdom and compassion. And in addition to investigating our assumptions about self, we can develop heart practices that help us loosen our grip on the self and open our hearts to connect with other beings and to appreciate mysteries that are greater than ourselves. When we've been um, discussing Anatta this month, I've noticed that a number of people shared how feelings of compassion and caring gave them a sense that felt less self. Moments of generosity and gratitude also seem to take us out of ourselves. The idea that we are truly connected, not separate from other beings and even all existence can lessen the latent insecurity of being a separate self. It can help us see the drawback of this attachment and motivate us to aspire toward a different contentment. A few months ago on a different topic, I talked about the new studies of awe by Dr. Keltner. He was, he's just published a book about his studies called awe. And he defines awe as the feeling of being in the presence of something vast that transcends your current understanding of the world. At the beginning of the book, he included a quote from Lao Tzu. And that is, from wonder into wonder, existence opens. Um, the Buddha said that every time we, um, you know, define ourselves, we limit ourselves. So letting go of our narrow center of the universe view of ourself and our our certainty in what is familiar and known to the self can open us to wonder and awe. And this can be a healing force in our lives and contribute to the well-being of others, too. Keltner identified eight types of awe, including moral beauty, which was most common. It was the most common type of awe experienced by people around the world in the study. Moral beauty was awe in the presence of other people's courage, kindness, strength, or overcoming. This kind of awe seems to me to be related to the Brahma Viharas, the Brahma Vihara, and specifically of mudita, or sympathetic, also called appreciative joy. Another type of awe that was studied was inspired by nature. And I'm going to read an excerpt from the book about the awe walk, because it shows a direct connection with awe and not self. And it reminds me of the recent walking meditation we did in Seward Park and my experience of it. So this was the summary of the study. In our study, in the control condition, participants were randomly assigned to engage, engage in a vigorous walk once a week for eight weeks, with no mention of awe. In the awe walk condition, once a week, our elderly participants followed the instructions to go on a mini on many awe journeys. All participants reported on their happiness, anxiety, and depression, and took selfies out on their walks. 
So the age, interestingly, the age of the elderly, why they chose the elderly is because they said from 50 to 75, people get happier. But at 75, people start feeling more depression. So they they wanted to see if this would have have an effect on people who were tending towards that. Um, Three findings were noted. Well, three findings of note were noted. First, as our elderly participants did their regular awe walk, with each passing week, they felt more awe. You might have thought that when we uh, more often experience awe in the wonders of life, those wonders lose their power. This is known as the law of hedonic adaption, that certain pleasures, consumer purchases, drinking, a savory beer, or eating chocolate, for example, diminish with their increased occurrence. I I know I experienced that, so I'm wondering if, if you identify with this too. Not so with awe. The more we practice awe, the richer it gets. Second, we found evidence of the notion of self, of the self extending into the environment. Namely, compared to participants in the vigorous walk, control condition, in the awe walk condition, people's selfies increasingly included less of the self, which over time drifted off to the side, and more of the outside environment. So the picture, instead of having the person filling up the whole page, the person person would be smaller in the picture and the environment would be bigger. It's kind of interesting. Um, let's see. Um, the two photos, and then he has examples of photos. And he said um, that this is what I think is important. He said that pictorial evidence of the vanishing self and awareness of being part of something larger. So that's what they concluded was happening, that um, the self was vanishing in significance and being a part of something larger was more evident in the pictures. Um, and finally, over time, the positive emotions generated by the awe walk led our elderly participants to feel less anxiety and depression and to smile with greater joy. So I felt, I feel that, um, you know, we have wisdom and compassion, the heart and the mind to work with in our practice with uh, understanding the right relationship of self and not self. And they're both really valuable. And um, our path leads us in that direction. And the happiness of the little ego self, you know, it talked about in this study how you get these pleasures like the drinking the beer and um, I can't remember the other examples, but um, I know myself that with those kinds of pleasures, which were the first kinds of pleasures that I felt like I would miss if I didn't have a self, that they diminish anyway, that we get this sense that, well, that's not enough. I need more. That's not enough. I need more purchases they were talking about. But with the second kind of 
happiness, contentment, joy, it actually doesn't diminish over time. It gets deeper. So I just wanted to share those uh, those uh, reflections about self and not self. And um, um, I wondered if in the discussion you could talk about um, the, the the contentment of um, the drawbacks of self and the the positives of self. I mean, we do need that. But then what about the not-self? What is your experience of the not-self? Have you found any um, uh, advantages? I mean, what is the purpose of not-self for you? Just any understandings about self and not-self and how they work is, is a good thing to discuss. And the book is called Awe, A-W-E. I'll put it in the um, in the chat by, and uh, the the man's name is kind of hard to spell, so I'll put that in too. So let's see. There's two chats here. Um, we can, oh yeah, we can't see you. Okay, so it's it's time if you can stay to discuss self and not self. That is the question. And um, I will put you into breakout groups. Okay, it looks like everyone is back. Would anybody like to share anything that um, you shared in the um, breakout groups? What did you talk about? Uh, Peter. Hi, yeah, thanks, Lauren. Um, we, it was such a wonderful talk you gave that we had a lot to chat about. Um, and actually, and Rosalie mentioned that hearing a podcast with an Indian doctor, 103-year-old Indian woman doctor, who was invoking something she'd seen on Rodney's desk. Really? Was, yeah, which was... Ask not what the world needs, you know, you to do. Ask what makes you more alive, because um, the world needs more people who are fully alive, more beings yeah. who are fully alive, which was pretty and pretty one. So that led us all kinds of places. It was great. Um, but one thing we ended where we toward the end we were coming as we talked about self and all that can happen without the self, or that the self is actually not responsible for. There was a term, a phrase you mentioned that I know I'm still learning about of codependent arise, dependent origination, you said, right. which is also codependent arising. Yeah. And maybe if you could say a little bit about how that connects to some of this stuff about self, that, that could be helpful. Yeah, that was a big year we had with dependent origination, and I did not really understand any of it before we started it. 
So the part I talked about was name and form. It, it starts with ignorance. That's the first phase that we're all ignorant of this process of how we become and that includes become a self. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm still not an expert on it at all, but the way I used it was that, um, it helps us see how we do structure a being, a concept and how, how the mind works and how. So the name and form, I, somebody can correct me. Probably Lyndall can help with this. Um, I'm not sure if it's the second or third phase. I know it starts with ignorance. We don't really understand. We don't see how everything works. And it is really what the Buddha saw when he was enlightened. He had all this insight, and this was part of it. So um, there are these 12 phases of dependent origination, and one of them is that the brain to organize and make sense of existence, our life, the world. The brain is a conceptual abstracting, has a process where it um, groups things, like the aggregates are heaps. So that's part of the process. You know, it groups like things, and then it names them. And then we just assume, we just go to the name to organize. We don't really question it. But uh, one example that, um, um, so there's lots of assumptions that go along with this. And one of the things that uh, Joseph Goldstein suggested, like in consciousness, it takes a, an, um, an organ like the eye or the nose or whatever, a sensory organ, and then it ta- needs an object like smell or taste and it need and they have to have contact and then we're conscious and then we know that we experience that so um so yeah that's consciousness name and form is just the fact that it groups things it names them it puts them into um, a category and it names them and then it's a concept and we can manipulate easier. But we keep like when we do the mindfulness of the body, I think that's the easiest one to connect with. We think, okay, there's there's the body and there's the name. We know what it is. But when we actually meditate with it, we see, whoa, it's way more than this. It's not as solid. It's made of all these different parts that are all moving, which is not the way the brain organized. You know, the brain can't deal with all that. So anyway, I would suggest you listen to a talk or something. I, it's so uh, there's a lot more to it. Do you want to add something, Lyndall? Lauren, I think you did a pretty good job of getting this sense of that for that sense of me to be there, it takes a bunch of stuff, you know, like you have to have a body, you have to be able to see, you have the way that the brain is naming things and organizing things and the memories and all of this stuff, all of this stuff comes together to make that sense of me. And if that stuff isn't there that 
exactly sense of me isn't going to arise. And if the stuff is a little bit different, maybe a slightly different sense of me will arise. So it's like it doesn't arise all by itself out of nothing. It's not an independent thing. Yeah, very good. Yeah. And the memory is really important, too. That's a really important part of um, how this functions is that we can remember. Well, thanks so much. Well, thank you for asking that question. Good question. Well, Lauren, I think you used a phrase that really struck me that the self is, I can't remember your exact words. Maybe you remember it was like this perception of the self really turns out to be like, like a bag of different parts or something like that. What did you yeah. say? Yeah. Yeah. Um, it was a beautiful I, phrase. I just can't remember what it was. Oh yeah. I, a heap, a heap of a parts. Heap. Yeah. A heap of parts. Heap of parts. <laughs> I think that's great. Yeah. A heap of parts. Yeah. Big old heap of parts. Okay. Lauren, I just want to thank you for the talk. And like, there are so many things you dropped in there that are such wisdom, like just little pieces, like the permission to realize you're going to have a self and you got to make to like, it's going to not go away completely. And talking about the awe, the book of awe and the nature pieces, but also the thing that really resonated for me was being in awe about people and the things that people like amazing things that people do and sort of, I think I'm going to think about that one a lot because just when I think of not self, I think of like not doing anything, like giving up any energy to participate in the world, but that's not exactly what it means. And sometimes people participate, especially if they're not self, they can maybe participate really, really well and achieve things and be amazing engineers and make things like zoom happen or hot water or like (laughs) become Olympians or, or something. And like this, you know, that even though those skills or things that people cultivate, like it's worth celebrating in some way too, like the balance of all that. So, so thank, so thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. It's hopeful. Not self is really hopeful. Not, not, you know, a disaster. <laughs> um, Sean and Bruce. Sean or Bruce. Yes. Hi. Um, where we live in a community of older folks, uh, in the last 30 days, seven people have passed away here. And that's a lot. Well, but it makes sense because there's like, 250 of us or 300 of us. So we have a very concentrated um, number, percentage of people that pass away. But when seven go at once, it's a lot. And it, and the last person that died is somebody that Bruce and I have known for quite some time. And we went over and visited his wife and his, uh, his kids are here. They flew in and, It's an, it, this comes out of our group that some someone shared. We were sharing about. I was sharing about odd about the beautiful beautiful experiences in my garden and everything. And then it came out that death is also an experience of awe because there's no longer the self. That person's self is no longer present. And when we were visiting his his wife. Um, You can see in the grief 
when somebody close has passed, you can see in their grief that it's almost like their form is not really solid anymore. I mean, I could see Joanne. She just wasn't solid. That's the way I see anyway. It was like her molecules were moving all around because she's being rearranged because her husband of, gosh, maybe 50, 60 years has just left. So herself is not the same. And I could just see it. Myself is not the same. Um, well, what I think is myself. Anyway, the point of all this is I was struck by something that was said in the group that um, awe is not necessarily from the beautiful walk in nature. It can, as, and as I'm talking about this, I, I'm really going to reflect on this a lot because as most of you know, Bruce and I have been going through the situation where he has cancer. And so he has a time a time limit or so they say. So we're in this and we live in a community where this is going on. It's like it's part of our life experience now. And rather than looking at it the way I look at it sometimes as being a bad thing or a scary thing or or, you know, that way, it's actually a really pretty awesome thing. You know, this this part of life of aging and the end of life and um, being there for one another when someone close to them passes. It's just as awesome as seeing a beautiful sunset. <sighs> Thank you for sharing that so much. And that is in this book. That oh, all good. is not just positive, and I didn't include it, and I am really glad that you did. And I was thinking as you were speaking that that would make a beautiful poem or something. Um, I mean, I think it has the power of that, what you're sharing. So I really thank you for sharing that. Yeah, well, you inspired me because the awe book, I'm going to get the awe book. And I love the poem. That was the the whole poem. Yeah. But I have to, I have to give credit to a member of our group because he was the one who brought this into the forefront that it's not just the beautiful things. It's the difficult things. And, and yeah. 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 Well, I'm going to remember what you said about the woman and the, how she was, you know, I can't remember the words, but I hope you write that down because it's really, um, I think, a deep insight <laughs> that I would like to remember. So thank you. Yeah, Bob, I didn't see you before. You just showed up. <laughs> you have to unmute. Oh, there you go. Oh, you, you're still muted. I don't think so, am I? Oh, now you're okay. Uh, well, just responding to what Sean said, Bruce also um, spoke up about Gil Fransdahl, teacher from uh, Redwood City um, Insight Meditation Center down in California, who Bruce was saying how he, we were talking about awareness and how there's an awareness that um, isn't concerned about 
um, what's happening in the moment or that's not swept up in it, I guess would be a way of saying it. And just to add a little lightness to the end here, I think I, I think about that, um, what Bruce is talking about, I, um, that just sort of um, the curiosity side that we talk about sometimes about being curious about what's happening. Um, and I think sometimes in both positive and negative situations that um, I find myself um, hearing a little voice that says, oh, uh, this is interesting. Uh, most recently, it's been happening to me in doctor's offices <laughs> when I go in and I'm waiting for a procedure or something I'm not really looking forward to. And I I just think, well, here I am. Uh, and I don't get swept into the to the the situation as much. And Bruce was mentioning that about it. It's it's you have a you have some choice there about um, uh, about reacting to your own awareness as opposed to to the situation that is either positive or negative. And and just marveling a bit at at your capacity to be aware in that situation. Uh, so that can that can help temper it somewhat, I think. Um, yeah. Are you saying? Um, I think that's a wonderful, personally, ability to do that. Um, are you saying that that has to do with awe? Or are you talking about something different? Because I was just thinking, wow, that is kind of awesome. <laughs> I mean, it's like. Yeah, because it's habitual to to be frightened or, you know, aversive to things like that. And then when you go beyond that and you don't know how. Yeah, I think it's awesome. It's, <laughs> what's awesome is your, in some ways, is your capacity to be aware of awe, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Not the particular situation that's inspiring it, negative or positive, but just yeah. the fact that you're, you, 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 you're aware of it, um, yeah. uh, and and you're not swept away by it. Um, uh, and I mean, that's. Am I good at it? No, <laughs> not often, not. But I, I, I think that that's been a key insight for me from from my practice over the years. Um, and and it didn't come. It didn't come until many years later, really. Um, uh, and I'm, I think I'm only beginning to work more with it now. Um, uh, 